0: You know, sometimes it's easy to get caught up in a regional battle. The South versus the coast. The South versus New York City. The South versus Brooklyn. I get it. I am guilty of plenty of snarky tweets about parachute journalists dropping in to cover southern stories, even though I personally know several native Alabamians who happen to work for some of the biggest media companies in the world. And that's the thing. The lines are blurry. New York is a city made up of people from around the globe, which includes a lot of Southern expats. And the South is increasingly full of people who are moving down from big cities on the coast, especially in light of the pandemic. And the battle can be fun, and the memes are usually funny, but sometimes we overlook the role that Southerners have played in shaping the national conversation. Just because those Southerners happen to work for New York companies. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we are talking with Elizabeth Spires, a person who helped establish how we read and write on the internet. Elizabeth was the founding editor of Gawker.com, a website that maybe didn't introduce the snarky blogger voice that took over media, but certainly took it mainstream. She helped craft and define that voice, and then went on to work for New York Magazine, edit the New York Observer, and found and run several other media sites. And Elizabeth grew up in Wetumpka, Alabama. So how did a woman from small-town Alabama become such a key player in New York media? It's just part of a long tradition of Southern expats helping shape national stories and national conversation. On today's episode, we talk about her life in Alabama, the culture shock she experienced in North Carolina more so than in New York, and of course her time working with Jared Kushner. And then we talk a little bit about that regional divide too. So whether you're in Birmingham or in Brooklyn, let's get started with this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Elizabeth Spires, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thanks for having me. So we are talking today a little bit about your time in New York, but also I want to talk about your time in Alabama. I don't know that people would necessarily assume that a woman from Wetumpka, Alabama would go on to play such a pivotal role in what might be called New York insider media. So let's start talking about, you know, you grew up in Wetumpka in 80s, early 90s. What was, what was your life like there? What was Alabama like?
1: I think uh, Wetumpka wasn't much different, although the population has kind of exploded since the casino went up there. I think Wetumpka had maybe 4,000 people when I was growing up, and and my whole family still lives around there. My dad's in Slapout, my mom's in Wetumpka, my birth mom's in Eclectic. So I, I go back when I can, although I haven't been back. Since before the pandemic, for obvious reasons, I grew up in a small town. I went to Edgewood Academy in Elmore. There were 32 people in my graduating class. So a lot of people sort of understand what that means. You know everybody from the time that you're able to make friends till the time you graduate. I graduated from Edgewood and I went to college at Duke in North Carolina. And I had a lot of culture shock going from Weetumka to Duke. I can't say that I had as much going from Duke to New York, but I feel like I had a, a great childhood in Alabama, Wetumpka is a tight-knit community I and mean, you really do know everybody and that's, that's something that I think is a blessing to grow up with.
0: When you say you knew everybody, Gawker established a reputation, a gossipy look at New York, you know, w- were, were you interested in that side of, of knowing everybody in, in Wetumpka or, or was that something that, you know, just kind of came with the territory?
1: Well, the, the origin of Gawker is, is a little bit simpler than I think people think it was. And basically, I had had a blog and I was writing about politics and finance and just stuff I was interested in. And I met Nick Denton, who was a British entrepreneur who had already sold two companies. And we just got to be friends. You know, Nick was a decade older than I was, but we were just spending a lot of time together. And he had this idea for a kind of insidery New York blog. And he liked my writing voice and asked me if I would write it. But I was in a New York insider, and really neither was Nick, you know, so we were trying to make observations about the way New York worked, but we're doing it as outsiders. And there's a long history of people in New York media who were outsiders doing that. You know, one of my guy I consider a mentor was Kurt Anderson, who co-founded Spy Magazine with Graydon Carter. Kurt was a dude from Omaha and, and Graydon's Canadian. There's a long tradition of people who are outsiders in New York, being the people who end up chronicling it. And I think partly it's sometimes it's easier for us to do it. We can see the contrast be, between, you know, the, the weirdness of New York and, and the way a lot of other areas in, in America operate. And I think that's harder to see if you grew up in New York, you would just assume all of it was perfectly normal.
0: But the voice that you kind of cultivated there, I guess was satirical. It was kind of built on the, the idea that New York is the center of the universe, but it it also kind of became a voice that from Gawker to Gizmodo to Jezebel, you know, became kind of the coin of the realm on the internet, and a lot of us grew up reading those sites and, and emulating that voice. Obviously, you didn't imagine anything like that would have happened when you were starting this this blog, but, and you left Gawker in what, 2002, 2000, no? Uh,
1: 2003, I think, yeah.
0: Has it been interesting and, and surreal to watch that take place?
1: Yeah, I thought it was interesting and surreal when it was happening, but it still sounds, it's still Bizarre to me, the first time I kind of realized that Gawker was taking off was when other media outlets started to cover us. And I remember at the time, you know, I, I was writing Gawker 50 hours a week, which was not the original intent. I, we thought it was going to be part-time fun thing. And it just ended up taking up my entire life. And I also wasn't really getting paid very much to do it. You know, Nick had agreed to give me like kind of stipend of like 1200 bucks a month, which does not pay the rent in New York. So I was freelancing on top of it and it was really stressful. And I was worried that I was going to go bankrupt doing Gawker. So the Times did a style section piece on us and it was coming out on like a Saturday or Sunday. And I remember Nick instant messaging me at the time saying like, did you go find the early copy of the Times so you can see the piece? And I I said, no, because I'm on deadline for something else and I'll see it tomorrow. And he was surprised by that because he was like, well, I, I wouldn't found it immediately. And I was like, well, I got to be honest. I don't, I'm not sure I even want to look at it because if I end up back in my parents' basement in a year, because I can't, <laughs> I can't make ends meet. It's just going to be that much more humiliating you know, <laughs> that, that we were getting that kind of attention. So that was weird. And then I remember like the first time my, my parents really realized what it was. I think it was like mentioned in a movie or something because they don't keep up with New York media, but they don't keep up with much media categorically so they kind of didn't really understand what Gawker was and when I got more traditional jobs I worked at New York Magazine I was a columnist at Fortune for a while like I bought them subscriptions I'm not sure if they ever read them but But (laughs) Gawker is just so far you know I mean there were people when we started it who didn't know what a blog was so my my parents were just when are you going to get a real job (laughs)
0: Well, and I think that's interesting because like, you know, college journalists and, you know, all over the country, uh, all over the world, I guess, probably read New York Magazine, Gawker, you know, some of the the more New York focused media more than your parents or more than a lot of our audience. Some of those sensibilities might work their way into our writing style, even if, you know, the, the preoccupation with a lot of New York centric things don't. The glaring example that disproves that point, I guess. Would would be Donald Trump and Jared Kushner, who you you work with. I'm at the New York Observer. Tell tell our audience a little bit about what the New York Observer was and and is. You know, it, it kind of inspired what Gawker initially started as.
1: Yeah, the New York Observer is a small regional newspaper. It's it's what's considered a general interest publication. So it covers politics, business, real estate, all the big industries that are kind of headquartered in New York and it had a big visual arts section. So we, we covered arts culture. And it was printed on salmon newspaper like the FT. So it had a distinct look and feel too. And it, but it's probably most famous nationally for being where the sex in the city column originated to so both the, the pride and horror of staffers there. I became the editor in 20, 2010, I think, 2011. Jared had recruited me because I had this digital background and he hoped that I would help you know, make the place more digital. And I also had an entrepreneurial background. So part of my job was to spin up new publications for the observer, which we did lifestyle supplements, like home magazines, that sort of thing. And I was there for 18 months, which doesn't sound like a long time, but under Jared, that makes me the second longest running observer. (laughs) editor. The, The editor for 17 years was Peter Kaplan, who was legendary. And he was kind of a fantastic, personality who, who did seem to be the right place at certain historical moments. So I had big footsteps to follow in after, after Peter, cause he sort of set the tone for the observer and the observer had a very specific voice that, you know, I tried to imitate at Gawker. I think Gawker's my influences for Gawker were spy magazine, the observer and, and an English satirical publication called private eye that Nick really loved. And I was just always sort of imitating them, but that voice wasn't very common online. We didn't have a lot of competition online specifically. You know, the Observer wasn't really putting their stuff online. This is when you were publishing on the fly because there was breaking news. That was highly unusual. You know, the Times wasn't even doing that at, the, at that point. But it was novel at the time.
0: Were you reading? I mean, I, I assume you weren't reading the New York Observer in, in about. but were you, were you reading outlets like Spy Magazine
1: I remember being vaguely aware of some new stuff that was launching. Like, I, I think I had a subscription to Swing Magazine, which was supposed to be a kind of cross between a political and culture magazine when I was in high school. But I, I didn't think I was going to go into journalism. So, and and Duke didn't even have a journalism school when I went there. I took zero journalism courses. I didn't work on the school newspaper. I kind of fell backwards into media, and I'd wanted to work in foreign policy. So. I think in as much as I was aware of New York media, it was just because I was a
0: big reader. Working for Jared Kushner and, and also, I mean, you know, covering the Trumps, whether it was with Gawker, I guess the complicated relationship of covering or not covering the, the Trumps with the Observer. They're kind of the quintessential, I guess, New York social climber. Could you see then what aspects of them, of their personalities may appeal to people in, you know, Wetumpka, Alabama?
1: People who really love Trump here in Wetumpka have an idea of him that's completely created by, you know, entertainment media. Like they watch The Apprentice and they think it's a documentary of sorts. So they have all these ideas about him that are, that are just wild to me. And, and I say that, you know, most of my family are Trump voters. You know, I could go home and tell them, you know, this thing that you think is absolutely not true. And I know this because I know Ivanka and Jared and the family and, it doesn't matter that they, they will listen to what Fox News tells them about Jared Kushner before they'll listen to what I, I tell them just because they, they assume that anybody who, who criticizes Trump is doing it from a place of pure partisanship, even when it's somebody like me who, who knows them and has had to cover them you know, for years. So, th- so there are all these myths about Trump that it's really hard to, if people are just determined to believe them, you can't dislodge. And, and that's, that's a problem. You I know, mean, it's a problem for journalists because it, it sort of indicates that when it comes to certain political issues, people don't really care what the truth is. They, they want a narrative that they like. So, you know, if you tell people that Trump has been in tax trouble for years, he, he ran his own company into bankruptcy four times in New York, he's regarded as bumbling you know, clown. He, he doesn't, he's not taken seriously as a businessman at all. And for good reason, you know, he ruined his own credit. By the time he ran for president, there was one American bank that would lend to him because he had such a bad track record. But you talk to people who don't understand that and they say, well, but he's a successful businessman. Have you seen The Apprentice? And he has a private plane. And they don't realize that there's a certain point at which you can, ha- you can have that kind of debt and also still have illiquid assets. And so they don't really put two and two together. There's also just, you know, there's a lot of class resentment and, and cultural resentment against what a lot of conservative voters view as coastal elite or just elites generally. And, and some of it's understandable, but some of it's just kind of knee-jerk bubble stuff. I always think it's funny when People suggest that people in New York live in a bubble because almost everybody I know who lives in New York has lived somewhere else, and, and almost no one I know that I grew up with has lived anywhere outside of Alabama. So I, I think there are there is a bubble effect, but it actually runs the other way. There aren't that many people I know who I grew up with who who know anyone who's progressive, you know, or who marched in a Black Lives Matter march. And here I, I know plenty of people who are conservative. I mean, New York overwhelmingly votes blue, but they're not hidden. One of my neighbors had a big Trump sign up that he just took down two days ago. There are aspects of it that are frustrating. It's, it's both as a journalist and to me personally, it's weird to see some of my relatives complaining about the liberal media and I'm the only liberal they know and the only person who's ever worked in media that they know. And they go, oh, but not you. And I say, well, who are you talking about? Like you have this sort of like cartoony idea of what the media is based on Frankly, what what shows that are, are sort of masquerading as news but are not news tell them, so they, they're they looking at Fox or Breitbart or Gateway Pundit or whatever, you know, they, they'll talk about the media, but they don't include that. it's like, well, that's the media too. And and more importantly, a lot of those outlets are, are really just commentary outlets. You know, they're not doing reporting. And we have, you know, a media literacy problem in this country that, that's partly enabled by the fact that news organizations don't really distinguish between news and commentary. So people just kind of lump it in together. But you're seeing consequences for that now. Like the fact that these networks are getting sued by Dominion for the voting system company for suggesting that their technology was faulty. I mean, that's that's a straightforward defamation case. And those, Fox is going to have to pay out some money for that. So there are some controls. I mean, you can't get up on Nashville television and say something defamatory about somebody, but you can go pretty far into stretching the truth or just outright lying with no consequences."
0: Coming up after the break, we hear more from Elizabeth Spires about the divide between New York and Alabama. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at com slash newsletters. Let's look at a time where Alabama was in kind of in the limelight. Let's look at, you know, 2017, for example. The entire world was paying attention to the race between Roy Moore and Doug Jones. You know, what was that like for you as somebody who who grew up in Alabama? You, you left in what, uh, early 90s, I guess, mid-90s? I left in, I, I, I matriculated to Duke in, in 95 longer now, I guess, than you, than you lived in Alabama, but you are an Alabamian, Alabama native says so right there in your Twitter bio, uh, and you come back home and, and visit family and things like that. So, you know, what, what is that process like in terms of I, when I moved to Chicago, I remember having kind of the, the twin impulses of being an Alabama apologist sometimes and saying, you know, it's not exactly what you think it is, but also, you know, there's a little bit of a need to maybe distance yourself from, from what's happening there. So were you wrestling with any of that?
1: I have to bama explain all the time. I After after Trump won, I, I was running a little agency, and we did a lot of branded content. We were spending up media publications, and my business partner was a guy who used to be a political pollster, and then uh, ran consumer research at Condé Nast for a while. And we could not stop talking about politics, which, you know, that's actually what I went to school for, and decided that we didn't want to do branded content anymore. We wanted to get involved politically. So we, we ended up, I sort of shifted the agency into a political consultancy and we do messaging and polling. So during the 2017 election, we were a vendor to a super PAC that was democratic super PAC. So we were keeping an eye on what was happening during that race because we were sort of working alongside them as, as, you know, separate organization, but you couldn't, can't coordinate with the campaign. In that scenario, but you do think about how to message things that will, you know, make people think about what's happening in the election. So, we also did a poll in Alabama around that time. And I was particularly interested in how people were reacting to, you know, the the charges that Roy Moore had, or you know, the allegations that he had sexually assaulted, minor, and also how the extent to which white evangelicals were kind of aligning with Moore from a place of you know, his very specific brand of conservatism. And and you know, the findings were not that surprising to me. One of the things about the people who supported more and and you know may may have even believed the allegations was just that there was a little bit of, you know, well, people around here get married young. Like if I got married at 17, does that mean that? My husband's a pedophile. You know, there, there was a lot of kind of people viewing it as a class issue, which is, the, and they would sort of stick their heads in the sand about the 14-year-old. So there, there you'd see all these kind of justifications for it. You know, the evangelical messaging kind of, it, it, it mattered around all the issues that you would think it does. Like it's, you know, single issue abortion voters care about it. And there's no equivalent for Democrats of, of like single issue abortion voters you just don't There are very few things that people would even occasionally single issue anything, but abortion and guns are huge for the right and we just don't have the same thing on the left. The polling kind of told me stuff that I intuited, but I needed to be able to show to people who were not Alabamians so that I had some quantitative basis for saying, you know, this is what it's like. And, you know, sometimes people would have wacky ideas. Like, you know, we have weird blue laws in Alabama where you can or can't buy liquor in certain places. And I had to explain to at least one political operative that you, you didn't want to make that an issue because even in dry counties, you, you have wet cities and the only difference is just like, maybe you have to drive 20 minutes more to get your booze. Like people just didn't care, you know? So that there's also this perception about like what particularly conservative voters in Alabama care about. And, you know, there's also an unfortunate thing that people who haven't spent a lot of time in the deep South Think of it for, through the lens of you know, and I hate to say it, you know, kind of white supremacy. Like they, they only think about white people in the South, <laughs> particularly with Alabama, and that's crazy. You know, that's you know, we have one of the largest you know ratio of African American citizens, and and the fact that if you say Alabama, you know, people automatically think of a kind of rednecky white person is depressing, and and it it sort of makes it difficult to to work in politics in Alabama because the the Democrats are just perpetually under-resourced because people think that it's a red state and it's just always going to be a red state. And that's frustrating. You know, I spent 2018 cycle working on some state ledge races with Anthony Daniels, who's the house minority leader. And that was, that was fun because we get amazing candidates who who know that it's an uphill battle and then they're not going to have a lot of resources. And so they, they are super resourceful. They're determined. And at the same time, you know, I'm working on races in New York where the candidates are different in terms of where they sit ideologically. They might be further left. You know, we've even had DSA candidates here, but they, they come in with, you know, they, they do have resources and, and they operate differently. So I every time I work on a race, especially down ballot races in red states, I'm just impressed with the tenacity of the candidates given what they face.
0: Outside of the city of New York, you know, if you get into more rural new york is there more commonalities between that new york population and Wetemka?
1: oh yeah well there's i mean staten island is is like rural white evangelical alabama i mean both just voter wise uh it's heavily red uh and when i say conservative i mean i've seen I, i used to live in bay ridge which is just across the bridge from staten island So Bay Ridge was very purple, you know, and and there was a conservative constituency there. It's, you know, it's it used to be kind of old cop and fireman neighborhood, and there was a building, you know, down the street from us where somebody had a Confederate flag hanging out the window, and that's not the kind of thing that you think you see in New York City, but there are pockets of it. Certainly, you go further upstate, New York's a big state. You know, I have this thing where every time there's a blizzard in Buffalo, my mom will call and be like, "Y'all okay?" And it's and I have to explain that Buffalo is like 9-hour drive from here. <laughs> now I live in a neighborhood. It's all still in Brooklyn, but it's it's uh technically the most at one point it was the most diverse neighborhood in the country, partly because it's it's called Kensington and it's it's right at the intersection of several ethnic neighborhoods and it's it's being gentrified by probably people like me and it it skews super blue and there's definitely a a piece of it where you know people do have black lives matter signs in their windows there aren't that many conservatives around here but again you go two miles south and it's a different story you know new york is dense city but it's actually not that big (laughs) so yeah and and, i've worked on races that were in bay ridge or that were um you know, where you really were trying to figure out where the where the Democrats and where the, you know, lifelong Republicans were and, and it wasn't clear. So more I think New York is more ideologically diverse than parts of Alabama that I've
0: lived in. When you first moved up to New York, you weren't working in media at the time. Did you feel any sort of internal or external pressure to to stop saying y'all or to to neutralize your accent?
1: I did when I went to college. That's uh and I don't have much of an accent now, but that was never intentional. It was more like a subconscious adaptive thing. And and if I have more than two martinis, the accent comes back a little bit. Or if I'm around my family, it comes back. I go home to Alabama and it gets deeper. But I, I you know, Duke was the only school I applied to and I had not been there. Like I, I didn't know I knew it was a good school, and my parents and I had this deal where I I couldn't apply anywhere that wasn't in the South, and I just kind of looked around and said, I think, I want to go to Duke. But I thought of it as as like really a Southern school, and then I got there, and there were eight Alabamians in my graduating class, like 240 from New York City. There, I had some, I think, cultural pressure to shed some of my redneckiness when I went to college, and I, I do remember I had a pretty deep accent at that point. And there was a a kind of dude who went to boarding school in the Northeast and was a lacrosse player who, at some point, like overheard me on the bus talking to somebody. And he looked at me and he goes, where are you from? You know, as if as if I had some alien accent, but it was rare. You know, there there wasn't even the Alabamians that were at Duke tended to be from Birmingham or Huntsville. You know, they they were not rural Alabamians. and, And that was true of a lot of the students that were from the South. You know, they tended to be from suburban enclaves like that. I was in an organization at Duke called Dukes and Duchesses where they, you, you would give tours to, you know, VIPs that would come in. And, and I always thought I was the, the redneck kind of token person where it's like, look at Spires. We, we pulled her her out of middle of nowhere Alabama, you know, and I didn't just didn't have the background that a lot of Duke was a rich kid school. And I didn't understand that either. Only 17% of the student body at the time was on any kind of financial aid. And you know, my dad was a local lineman for Southern company. So I, I was on a lot of <laughs> financial aid. I felt like I got a preview of New York while I was at Duke. And it wasn't too much of a transition to go from Duke to New York, but, but quite a lot to go from We to
0: Duke. In your Twitter bio, you Refer to yourself as an Alabama native and a, and a Brooklynite. H- how do you reconcile those two aspects of your identity, your personality?
1: They're both kind of heavily parts of my personality now. I consider them both parts of my identity because both of them have shaped you know who I am. And I think uh, when I moved to New York, I didn't think I was going to stay. I, I thought I'd stay here for a couple of years and then go somewhere else. And I'm a little bit of a novelty seeker and nomadic, but I. I yeah, I ended up staying here for 20 years, just because mostly for work, but also because I liked it. You know, the the way I think about identity is kind of increasingly complex, too. Growing up, I was conservative, white, evangelical, and squarely, you know, my, my political ideas were exactly where those are now for people who, who are conservative white evangelicals. And, and, you know, over time I became, you know, I moved more to the left, although not in the way that, you know, I think some of my relatives imagine that I went to college and got indoctrinated by leftists. By the time I graduated college, I was, more liberal but still a conservative i would have self identified as maybe socially liberal libertarian and also like you know i have other reasons that identity is meaningful to me i was adopted you know and i, I met my biological mother a couple of years ago and i had three siblings i didn't know about uh and, and my bio mom is half mexican and indigenous so our, my great-grandfather was an immigrant um so there, there are, there are a lot of pieces of my identity that just kind of don't fit squarely in one bucket. I love New York City; like it, it is my home now. I, I might leave at some point, but, but I also think of Alabama as home. You know, it, it's it, what means home to me. The context that we're talking about, and and there, there are things that I I miss about Alabama. You know, it's hard to be away from family when I have a five-year-old, but also, you know, my husband and I both work in industries where historically we kind of needed to be here. And I love big city. I get bored really easily. I don't want to live in a rural area again. Like I I want a vacation in a rural area (laughs) and take a break from New York occasionally. But a lot of things that drive other people insane about New York, I, I really enjoy. So
0: you know, you've had your finger to the pulse of how media has changed for the last 20 years as much as anybody. You know, you've launched plenty of microsites yourself. Do you see it getting better? Do you see it getting worse? You, you've launched a substack recently, I think. That, that's in the, uh, there's a lot of conversation about that, whether or not it's going to make things better or worse at the moment.
1: I think the the biggest problem with media right now is just the the sort of silo effect that some of these things have on media distribution, So you can sort of live in a media bubble where all your news comes from Facebook and it's algorithmically generated to appeal to you, which may mean that it's not always true. And you're, you know, the number of outlets that you look at are increasingly smaller. And I think that that's not really conducive to people really understanding the truth or as citizens, everybody having a shared reality, you know, it really undermines the social contract when everybody thinks that totally different things are happening because of their media diets. Internet business models have also not been great for local news, although I would wager you know local news is sometimes hit or miss you know depending on where you are anyway. But when you look at where people are getting their information, you know it's it's significant that Sinclair owns a ton of broadcast stations and that they they force anchors to read you know politically charged messages, and there's no equivalent of that on. The left either. But also it's made it more difficult to sustain local newspapers, which is unfortunate. And, and that's also just an issue of people not really understanding how to adapt to new business models. And there, there are no easy answers. The companies that I think are are doing a good job usually have several lines of business, some of which you don't see. You know, they might the economist has a big events business on the back end, although I'm sure the pandemic probably took a big whack out of that and there are certain publications that can work off of a subscription model there are others that can't I think it's a problem if everything becomes subscription because you know part of the public interest element of journalism is that you inform the public and you know you, you don't want to be in a position where the public can't have that information unless they pay for it because that locks out. A lot of people from just being informed. So, but I think things like Substack are just a totally different ball of wax. Substack is this you know, newsletter platform where you can write a newsletter. And if people choose to subscribe to your newsletter for an amount of money, they can get a large portion of that. And then Substack takes a percentage. So there are some big newspaper columnists, magazine columnists who have moved over to Substack and they're raking in giant piles of money. You know, I think Matthew Iglesias is making like 800 grand a year. But the the thing about that is you have to already have that audience, you know, and he kind of did, he built it up at Fox, Glenn Greenwald probably has a similar number of people, you know, Matt Taibbi, and that's a hard bottle. you know, that, that it's difficult to build an audience that you can port away from one outlet to another. Like you, you really have to build up a, a kind of personal brand and it really, it rarely works for people who aren't opinion columnists. So I don't see stuff like that really cannibalizing media. I, what I'm more concerned about is that there are fewer incentives for really hard, in-depth reporting, which is expensive and time-consuming. There are fewer people willing to fund it, and I just worry that you know people don't really understand the function of journalism. And the last administration did not help that case by by creating a narrative that you know journalists are all out to pursue some partisan agenda and particularly that they're enemies of the people. That, that is just morally despicable to me because it's fundamentally anti-democratic. And, and there, there's just a really disturbing kind of thing that I, I feel like has been happening on the right and in, in, in the Republican party where people are um, embracing these anti-majoritarian, anti-democratic ideas. And I don't think some of them really understand that the, the alternative to that is, is an increasingly authoritarian society. I feel like democracy should not be a partisan issue. We should all be in favor of democracy. Uh, so, and so, you know, really trying to destroy trust in journalism, it, it undermines that. So, you know, that's another problem we have. We, we have to sort of restore the brand of journalism. But I also think, you know, when people talk about lower trust in media, that's not necessarily a function of journalists doing their job worse. You know, that, that's a function of there being more media, you know, people consuming more of it, people understanding more about what's happening and not liking some of it. So I, I don't see, I don't think that there's really inflection point where Media got worse, or something, and trust went down. You see, trust in the media also went down after Watergate, after the, the you know most famous of all time, maybe journalistic story, and it was because people didn't trust institutions as much. And I think that's happening now. Like there, there people don't trust anything that they perceive as an institution that they can't access. And it's you know we we also do have a problem. Media, large media companies are all very New York centric.
0: I think that reinforces that perception. To wrap up, you know what's something that the average Alabamian gets wrong about New York, and what's something that the average New Yorker gets wrong about Alabama?
1: Well, when they think about New York, they, they really do think that somehow like New York is a self-contained place where uh, we all live in a bubble. And, and for the reasons that I explain, that's highly unlikely. It's also a city full of immigrants who have had vastly different experiences than most, most Americans. So I'd say New Yorkers are not the people who live in a bubble. <laughs> They're, they're the least bubbly place and, and Alabamians. I mean, you know, one of the biggest issues is that, you know, the way that Alabama is portrayed and not just journalism, but, you know, entertainment media is not great. You know, there, there's a sort of sense that, you know, everybody's backward and uneducated and doesn't, if you have a Southern accent, it really is a class marker. And that's a function of people not really understanding that Alabama population-wise is, is diverse. And also that there's varying culture, you know, the middle of Birmingham is not the middle of Elmore County, you know, and that's, that's something that I think people learn is different when they come and spend time in the Deep South.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. And we hope to talk to you again soon.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: And that's our show, folks. Thank you so much to Elizabeth Spires for taking the time to chat with us. You can find her on Twitter at espires.com. That's E-S-P-I-E-R-S. If you liked this episode and you want to talk more about the Southern influence on national culture, join us over on our new newsletter, The Conversation. You can sign up for it at reckonsouth.com newsletters. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. Our original theme music was written and recorded by Alexander Ritchie and it was edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team at Edit Audio. If you've been listening to our show for a few episodes now and you haven't taken time to review it or share it with your friends, please do. It'll really help us grow our audience so we can keep telling more Southern stories. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.